Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air. And here we are once again discussing uh, Bruce Chadwick's I Am Murdered, uh, George Wythe, Thomas Jefferson, and the killing that shocked a new nation. We are still on into uh, part one, but we have a lot more um, information um, to explore, not just explore, but to investigate and learn that probably many of us didn't know um, before, which is not a bad thing, but now we have the opportunity to expand upon what we've already learned from the previous um, episodes and now take that uh, forward into an even better uh, direction. So, this session, or let alone this episode, we're going to be discussing um, how uh, George Wythe and Thomas Jefferson get to know one another, given that uh, not only is uh, George Wythe um, a law professor at William & Mary, but how he uh, will come upon meeting young Thomas Jefferson. So, we will uh, now start with our first lead-off question for the um, for this uh, episode. How old was Thomas Jefferson when he enrolled at the College of William and Mary? Now, I could tell you all this much. I know that traditionally, when um, students enroll in college, they're usually between the age of eighteen and nineteen. But that's not to say that you get students who start uh, col- who enroll in college uh, later on in life. And that can be for a variety of reasons, but it's not a bad thing. But usually, I think of uh, typically the age between 18 and 19 when um, when uh, young men and uh, women um, begin their uh, collegiate uh, path. But as for Thomas Jefferson, he was uh, at the age of 16. So when he arrives to uh, Williamsburg in 1759... Think about what's going on in the world at this time. There is a war going on in colonial America. It won't be for another 16 years until the first shots are fired around the world. But in 1759, we are um, in the midst of a war that had begun about three years earlier, being the French and Indian War, or as what the Europeans referred to as the Seven Years' War basically being a war between England against the French and the Indians and the fight pretty much for supremacy of the um, eastern seaboard of colonial America. So it is fair to say that even when Thomas Jefferson enrolls at the College of William and Mary, that the world is turbulent. But on the other hand, the world probably wasn't as turbulent as we know in today's modern uh, times. However, I can say that about two years before Jefferson arrived to William and Mary, tragi- tragedy struck in his family. Uh, Jefferson lost his father, uh, Peter Jefferson, who was a very uh, well-to-do surveyor in Virginia. Jefferson was very close to his father, and uh, his father, um, his father, uh, designed um, a very um, prestigious map of Virginia, along with Joshua Fry, that pretty much um, set the boundaries between what we now know as Virginia and North Carolina, Virginia and Maryland. Of course, when the map was established, Virginia was not in the same shape like we know today, because at that time, you know, Virginia, territory west of Virginia was um, comprised of Ohio, West Virginia, Indiana, Illinois, even Michigan. But nonetheless, it is a very, very um, incredible map to look at. As a matter of fact, you can find the map uh, at uh, George Wythe's house in Williamsburg. You can also find it even at the uh, Mickey Tavern, which is not far from Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. But yes, Jefferson and his father are very close to one another, and the death of his father was a real uh, blow. So, coming to William & Mary... It was a great way for him to get an education, but he was also needing to seek the guidance of older and wiser men. You have to, and I can tell you this real quick that um, Jefferson was one of eight children. He was the oldest. He only had 
one brother, but he had six sisters. Um, historians do know that he had two other brothers who died in infancy. As for his other brother, there's about a 12-year age difference. So Jefferson, um, while yes, he is he has been counted on at home to do a lot of uh, tasks, given that he is the eldest male-born child of the household, and now that his father has gone, the uh, responsibilities become even greater. But he does need uh, an opportunity to really expand his horizons in the world. And what do you know? Being able to go to William and Mary was a great um, opportunity, one that he obviously did not take for granted. And two, um, meeting George Wythe would change his life in so many ways. Interesting enough, though, that uh, both men... are. There's about a 17-year age difference between uh, both men. Uh, Mr. Wythe was born in 1726, and as for Thomas Jefferson, he was born in 1743. Despite their 17-year uh, age difference, I believe it's fair to say that neither one of these men missed out on anything. And to back that up, um, here we go with some good examples. Not just some, we could have uh, plenty of good examples so despite their age differences, Wythe and Jefferson greatly valued education. Each man had a great passion for books, as well as subjects like science, gardening, Greek language and ancient Greek culture, to discussing the day's issues in Williamsburg with everyone whom they came across. Well, if you're interested in something and you come across someone who might have the same interests as you do, or or if it's not 100% alike, you can still find topics to discuss that are uh, relevant, and not just relevant, but will expand one's knowledge. It turns out that Jefferson, uh, when he was uh, at William & Mary, there was the governor, or I should say the royal governor, was a fellow named uh, Francis Fauquier. Well, Jefferson and, uh, gov and royal governor Fauquier became friends when they each discovered that one another recorded meteorological findings on a, on a daily basis. Jefferson, uh, even well after his days at William & Mary and when he um, first started to build Monticello, of course that became a lifelong um, procession, but Jefferson kept daily records of the temperature, regardless of season. And they have uh, proof of that at Monticello. If any of you all have never been before, uh, they do. Uh, you can see um, weather vanes uh, or thermometers. I mean, he was uh, very avid into um, into the weather. So, um, given how much with and Mr. With and Mr. Jefferson shared alike subject-wise, what did Mr. Wythe do to help young Thomas Jefferson become indoctrinated into Virginia's high society? Another word, you know, for indoctrinated, meaning that you become um, accepted, you um, are welcomed. You know, even in today's time when we go off to college, we want to make sure that um, as young as students that we make good connections, not just with professors, but make good connections um, outside of college as well that can be um, assets, not just short-term but long-term, but it really pays to have uh, good connections no matter where you go in terms of college, big or small. The connections are important. As, so anyways, what did Mr. Wythe do to help young Thomas Jefferson become indoctrinated into Virginia's, Virginia's high society? Well, Mr. Wythe went about introducing Jefferson to high-profiled men like George Washington, Patrick Henry, to George Mason. Well, isn't there, a, there is a college in Northern Virginia named George Mason University, and it is named after this distinguished Virginian named George Mason, who would be one of the earliest um, supporters, not just supporters, but a very fierce, ardent supporter behind what we would know as the Bill of Rights to our United States Constitution. Uh, Mr. Mason was also, you know, very fervent and adamant about independence from England, but he at times has been uh, forgotten uh, 
in large part because there are a lot of people out there who haven't given him enough uh, credit for being one of the first of our forefathers to really advocate for a Bill of Rights. There were many uh, of those who signed the U.S. Constitution who who um, wanted a Bill of Rights put in right away, but of course we had to uh, wait until the first Congress was, um, the first uh, United States Congress, um, when they met in New York um, City, when George Washington became president. That's obviously when the Bill of Rights was finally put into play, and luckily George Mason was still alive when that when the first ten amendments were added to the U.S. Constitution. So basically George Mason laid out the blueprints and he lived long enough to see the end result. So did Patrick Henry and of course George Washington being president. Um, all the dominoes fell in, into the uh, right uh, places. But yes, meeting um, high-profile people is regardless is a uh, very uh, good step but in colonial times this was um, huge because if Jefferson doesn't have the opportunity to meet uh, men like George Washington Patrick Henry to George Mason how is he going to make a name for himself uh, down the road when uh, his country will need him in ways that he probably never imagined uh, would have been expected Well, you know, Thomas Jefferson, from what I've learned, because I've read so many books about him, after all, he is one of my favorite uh, Virginians uh, to read about. Of course, there are many other uh, Virginians, famous Virginians that I enjoy reading about, especially like George Washington, uh, James Madison, James Monroe. But Thomas Jefferson is up there. He's been number one for a long time. I believe probably a lot of it could be uh, due to the fact that both of my parents went to the University of Virginia, one of my sisters did, and even though I didn't attend the University of Virginia, whenever I walk the grounds, I still feel as though I am a student. Hey, when you've grown up with, um, with a special place like the University of Virginia, given that that was one of three things Thomas Jefferson wanted to be remembered for as the founder of the university, whenever you... Um, visit somewhere as special as that, it does hold a, a very um, important place in your heart. So, as for Thomas Jefferson, I can tell you this much, and I'll probably tell you a little bit more um, here in a little bit, but Jefferson was very, very devoted to his studies. Now, as good as that was, is it safe to say that Williamsburg was Williamsburg immune to distractions? Well, distractions can be a vague uh, term. They can be um, really bad or they can be minor. Well, if any of us were to say yes, that Williamsburg was immune to distractions, then that should raise a red flag right there. Because Williamsburg, like any other city, even in the 18th century, was not immune to distractions. The city itself was home to a racetrack, okay, let's, racetrack, where you, horse betting, you know, people are going to go watch, go to uh, some horse races, they're going to place money, they're going to wage bets with one another to see uh, which horse wins the whole thing, that ties in, you know, with gambling in a way, but gambling alone isn't confined to a racetrack, you can go to a tavern um, to play dice and cards, so think about this. Taverns are very big in Williamsburg. Historians know that there were about 15 of them during the um, heyday of um, colonial times. Um, I do know that uh, there's at least four taverns that you can uh, dine at in, colon in colonial Williamsburg, um, especially right on the heart of uh, Duke of Gloucester Street. And um, another tavern being just behind the uh, Capitol building being uh, Christiana Campbell's. Well, my wife and I have eaten at all four of the taverns. They're wonderful. But hard to believe at one time there were 15 taverns in Colonial Williamsburg. So I'll tell you a little bit more about taverns here in a moment. But another uh, big distraction, and this one <laughs> has been around since the beginning of time. It's also the oldest known profession, prostitution or let alone uh, prostitutes, were a distraction. So uh, how does that going to impact college students in general, William & Mary? Well, I do know that in, in Jefferson's time, as a student there, 
The students at William and Mary had to obtain permission from the House of Burgesses, which was the um, premier uh, legislative body in Virginia. It's basically the equivalent of what we know now in today's time as the House of Delegates, but up until uh, about 1775-1776, our legislative body in Virginia was known as the House of Burgesses. So college students at William and Mary had to obtain permission from their um, representative ahead of time before entering a tavern. Why would you need permission? Well, I think it's fair to say that um, you're at college for a reason, to get an education. You're there to learn how not only just to become a true gentleman, you're there to learn how to um, take the knowledge that you've acquired and apply it in everyday settings, but also you're there to um, to learn um, respect, uh, civility. You're, you're there to um, show others that, hey, you are ready for the real world. So, yes, there's nothing wrong with a college student at this time going into a tavern, but the bottom line is you need permission because what the legislators don't want are students um, in the college itself, rather, the College of William and Mary, along with the legislature, they don't want students sneaking out of their rooms. They also don't want them cutting class to uh, enter inside to a tavern, only to be engaging in um, improper activities that are not um, deemed appropriate. So, in other words, taverns really were reserved for those whom had legit reasons for being there. In other words, you know, more so, how do I say it, for business purposes, you know, to conduct um, a, you know, business deals, uh, which might also mean having a, a, a beverage, uh, let alone a, a fine meal. But you're not there just to uh, sit around uh, for a young student, or let alone a student uh, at William & Mary. They're not there just to sit around and waste time away. As for Thomas Jefferson, he was a very well dis he was very well disciplined academically to where he avoided these uh, improper activities uh, mentioned earlier. As a matter of fact, historians know that Jefferson probably devoted at least eight to ten hours a day studying. And as for um, academical studies, I will get more to more of that towards the end, and I think many of you will probably be very blown away at just how rigorous the uh, academical uh, learning standards were for the um, 18th century. But on the other hand, that was not a bad thing at all, because the more academical studies there were, the greater the students could focus on those studies to where they could um, avoid being distracted uh, from things that were not um, relevant to their um, circumstances as to why they were attending college. So, uh, to give you a little bit more background on Thomas Jefferson, where was he born? Well, he was born in Virginia. He wasn't born in Richmond, and he wasn't born in uh, the Tidewater region. He was born in um, outside of Charlottesville in Albemarle County at a place known as Shadwell. It turns out that he uh, grew up at a home named Shadwell, and his father, Peter Jefferson, named uh, the home Shadwell in honor of where Jefferson's mother uh, came from in England. She grew up in a parish outside of London uh, that was known as Shadwell. Well, I can tell you this much about Jefferson's father. Given that he was a very well-to-do surveyor, he um, came from um, what we might call middle-class uh, background, but he did a lot of surveying work for well-to-do families, and one of them just so happened to be the Randolphs. After all, Thomas Jefferson's mother is a Randolph. She comes from one of the um, premier, elite, powerful families in Virginia. The Randolphs, the Lees, the Custises, the Birds, uh, the Parks, um, those are just a few um, names, a um, few prominent uh, last names. Oh, the Carters is another one. I, they, those six families are probably some of the most powerful families in Virginia. But yes, uh, his mother being Jane Randolph hailed from Shadwell, England, and so therefore their um, home was named Shadwell in honor of where she hailed from. 
But Shadwell, believe it or not, um, is no longer in existence anymore. The home is. Uh, the house itself where Jefferson lived, uh, sadly, um, burned to the ground in 1770. And all that's left is just a foundation, the, the, the most basic foundation. And I can tell you this much, too. Um, as I mentioned earlier about how um, Jefferson recorded um, weather observations daily, Jefferson was a habitual note-taker. And the reason for why he um, recorded so much information was because in the aftermath of the fire at his um, home in Shadwell, in 1770, he pretty much lost everything, and that included um, journals of notes that he um, wrote down, and while all of that was a, a, a huge blow to him, one of, the, um, one of the lessons he took was that no matter where he went, he always made extra copies. This way, if the original copy was misplaced, he always had something else to back it up. Think about it. There were no computers in 1770, but hey, if you wanted to make more than one copy of something, you just went out of your way to do it with a pen and ink. And Jefferson was the type who was willing to make that investment. And because of that, he was better off in the long run. Now, as for George Wythe, where was he born? Well, he was born in uh, the Tidewater area. He was born in a place known as Chesterville, which is now Hampton. He was born in a county uh, that was at the time known as Elizabeth City County, probably named after Queen Elizabeth I. Jefferson and Wythe, uh, before I get to that part, I should also point out that where uh, George Wythe was born, Langley Air Force Base is right nearby, his um, home. Of course, the home where he... Um, was born in and grew up uh, is no longer around. Historians do know that that home um, was still around up until the early 20th century, but um, but where he grew up, uh, it's now surrounded by Langley Air Force Base. So as so George Wythe and Thomas Jefferson were alike, obviously in many ways, but they each lost their fathers at a very young age. George Wythe wasn't even. I don't believe George Wythe had even come close to making it to the age of 10, given that Jefferson was 14 when his dad died. But George Wythe, I think, was either between the ages of 3 and 5 uh, when his father sadly died. So it was Wythe's mother, Margaret, whom was very, very well educated. She was very well read. And it was, her, it was his mother, Margaret, who pretty much educated him. And she heavily influenced him to constantly expand his horizons. She even went as far as encouraging him to um, advocate for those who were less fortunate, those whom were not able to have a say in, gov in, in their own government. You know, think about it. Like, you know, women, for example, yes, you know, there were many uh, well-to-do women who did give their husbands, you know, some good advice, but yet women in the 18th century are not able to hold political offices just yet. Now, at age 20, George Wythe passed the bar exam and became a lawyer. So we're talking about 1746. He practices law in Fredericksburg, which is uh, north of um, Richmond. And it's in Fredericksburg where his... Um, surviving sibling well both of his other siblings are still alive but his sister Anne resides in Fredericksburg and it's also in Fredericksburg where George Wythe's um, grandnephew would be born George Wythe Sweeney we've mentioned him quite a bit but in case any of you all are wondering where he was born he was born in Fredericksburg now what made George Wythe's partnership with a fellow attorney named Zachary Lewis so unique? Well, it turns out that George Wythe, in 1747, married Zachary Lewis's daughter, Anne. Tragically, a year later, in 1748, she, passes, she passed away. 
I'm not sure what she died from, but sadly, um, it was a tough pill for Mr. Wythe to swallow. So after his wife's passing, he left Fredericksburg and moved to Williamsburg. He joined a law firm, which led him to establish ties with many legislators in the House of Burgesses. And it just so happened in the year 1753, around 1753-1754, Mr. Wythe himself would be elected to the House of Burgesses. So it's one thing to be a lawyer, which is great, but how about being a House of Burgess? How about being in the House of Burgesses? That's another um, distinctive honor. You know, one time when my wife and I were in Williamsburg, I asked um, a docent there if uh, Burgess members um, had elections. In other words, were there um, elections that we know of like we do today? The fellow said to me that they didn't hold elections back then like we do today because when one served in the House of Burgesses, it was a very, very noble honor. The only way um, House of Burgesses, House of Burgess members would have um, would have uh, stepped down or would have um, no longer served in office would have been the following: retirement, resignation, or death. More often than not, I would like to believe that most of uh, Burgess members who who decided to step down would have been in retirement. But there were many uh, well-to-do Burgess members who um, who made that as a career. Of course, they, in terms of serving um, the greater public. Now, we go to 1755. What happens to George Wythe that year in 1755? Well, I know, for one, his brother passes away, and Wythe um, becomes the sole um, inheritor of the uh, Chesterville plantation. But he remarries and gets married to Elizabeth Talia Farrow. She is the daughter of Richard Talia Farrow, whom greatly admired Wythe. Hey, well, it uh, definitely pays to have a good connection there, knowing that you're marrying... Um, someone whose father has a lot of regards for you, uh, the worst thing that could happen would be the opposite. So this is a good win-win situation. Talia Farrow, we know that uh, Talia Farrow's, the Talia Farrow family is a very well-to-do family. I'm not sure if they maybe have the same kind of money status like the Lees and the Custises or the Carters have, but nonetheless they are well-to-do. While George and Elizabeth did not have any children of their own, they took in several William and Mary students as if they were their own children. Of course, Thomas Jefferson was one of them. They probably did the same for John Marshall, who was Thomas Jefferson's cousin. Of course, John Marshall went on to become Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court in 1801. They also probably would have done the same for uh, James Monroe. The list goes on and on, but that's how compassionate and... Um, caring that George and Elizabeth Wythe were. Now, I can tell you this. Um, I'm sure some of you are wondering. Um, at Colonial Williamsburg, is there a home still there that George Wythe might have resided? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, it's right down the road from the uh, governor's palace. And the building after George Wythe's um, home is uh, Bruton Parish Church. So it's a 3,900-square-foot uh, Georgian-style home that is, in, is still in existence today. It's the original building, which is amazing, and it's open to the public for visiting. My wife and I have been in, Mr. in the Wythe house many of times, and, it, and no matter how, how many times we go, we feel like we learn something new all the time, but we can say the same for Williamsburg in general. But what I can tell you this, uh, not to get too, of, too far ahead, but I do know that... Um, that the Wythe House also at one time um, served as uh, Washington's headquarters um, as the right before the Battle of Yorktown took place, which uh, was the battle that the British uh, surrendered. Of course, Yorktown is uh, part of that historic triangle. In case any of you all didn't know, 
you've got Williamsburg, Yorktown, Jamestown. It's a very unique historical historic triangle onto itself. But before having met Jefferson, uh, Mr. Wythe served various high-level posts in Williamsburg. And I would think that um, given that he's already a lawyer as well as being a member of the House of Burgesses, why not serve other posts? How about ranging from aldermen to mayor to vestrymen at Bruton Parish Church? He, his first judicial role came in 1761 as a justice to the Elizabeth City County Court System. So, George Wythe has heavily influenced Thomas Jefferson into um, the field of law. After all, Thomas Jefferson has uh, been a student of Wythe's for four years. So if Jefferson arrived in 1759, I think it's fair to say that between 1759, 1762, or 1763, we're looking at about a four-year span. But then he would go on to spend the next five years serving as Wythe's law clerk, which involved studying law, writing and reviewing briefs. Now, I'm sure many of you all are wondering, what are briefs? <laughs> Usually when we think of, uh, you know, briefs, we might think of as short for briefcase, but briefs are written legal arguments that are presented before the court that will either persuade a judge to side on your, um, on your behalf or to rule against you. Jefferson also would be required to learn how laws themselves impact society. So... We have to remember, too, folks, uh, you know, in today's time when young men and women go off to law school, they take a test called the LSATs. We didn't have LSATs in the 18th century, but is it fair to say that uh, Thomas Jefferson spent five years serving as with law clerk is like the equivalent of an apprenticeship? Absolutely. That's the closest thing um, we would have uh, gotten in terms of... Um, in terms of like, you know, today's time, you know, um, if one is a clerk, they are um, obviously um, doing um, research work for a judge. And they are usually in that post being a clerk until they, he or she passes uh, the bar. So Thomas Jefferson's got his hands full, but it's all for the right reasons because it's going to really uh, pay off for him uh, down the road. Where could Thomas Jefferson have gone, which he did, that would serve tremendous assets? Okay, if you want to be a lawyer, where do you think the, the best place to go would be in Williamsburg? Well, I mean, off the bat, if you really want to know what it takes to be a good lawyer, I mean, yes, you obviously you do the things that I mentioned a moment ago, um, such as... Um, learning about what, how and why laws impact society, to studying law, writing and reviewing briefs, written legal arguments, one thing you could do is you could actually sit in an actual uh, courtroom and observe the, um, the, the attorneys on both sides uh, present their cases uh, to the judge. Now, on the other hand, in Virginia, the uh, jury is comprised of uh, men who are very uh, prominent in their community. And serving on the jury is a very, very high prestigious honor. But another um, thing that Thomas Jefferson could do, and he ended up doing it, was visiting the Capitol, where the, houses, where the House of Burgesses met twice a year. In October, being fall, April, spring. Now, sitting, when we think of uh, being able to sit in and watch the legislature in session, we often think of being able to sit somewhere high up and watch from a distance uh, legislators debating the um, matters at stake on the floor. But in 1765, Jefferson wasn't able to do that. What he was able to do was um, listen behind closed doors with the door slightly open to hear what the legislators had to say. And we have to remember, too, at one time, folks, uh, legislators, especially in the House of Burgesses, their sessions weren't open to the public. 
think about it. If you didn't really have any business, or if you didn't have anything to offer, if you didn't have any business to offer the Burgesses, why would you be there? After all, yes, the Burgesses are making laws for the greater um, state of Virginia, but on the other hand, they're making laws that will also benefit them as individuals. So in 1765, Jefferson listened to Patrick Henry, a very another prominent Virginian, rail against Parliament's passage of the Stamp Act. The Stamp Act, and I'll tell you a little bit more here um, shortly, but I can tell you this much, that the Stamp Act was one of many unpopular bills or laws passed by Parliament to get money from the colonists for payments from the French and Indian War. Well, after uh, that war ended in 1763, the British um, treasury system was pretty much drained. And Parliament and the Crown felt that their subjects, being the 13 colonies, should help do their part to raise the costs of the war so that this way Britain would have money put back into their system to be able to keep their government in check, or let alone running. I will Another thing that I can say here, where Jefferson and With, of course, they have so many things in common, but another good example was that, like Jefferson, George With himself refrained from gambling, as well as attending cockfights. Cockfights, you know, with um, roosters or chickens, you know, fighting one another. It's in that same level of um, improper activities like dog fighting that we still hear about from time to time on the news to public wrestling matches. In other words, George With, like Thomas Jefferson, really doesn't have time to be engaged in activities that, I don't mean it the wrong way, but activities that would be confined to a lower class of society. There were just some places that someone of upper-class status did not belong, and that was being involved in um, activities that would have been reserved for the lower bottom of society. I don't know if I can make a full comparison, but I do remember my father saying one time when he was uh, growing up that throughout most of the 1950s, you did not want to be seen at a racetrack. You also didn't want to be seen at um, at a bowling alley. I also remember him saying to me that um, you didn't want to be seen at the liquor store at a regular on a regular basis either. He said that if, for example, he said if one was seen at the liquor store on a regular basis, that was a very very uh, bad sign in regards to the individual. But I but back to our focus. Uh, another thing that. Um, George With cannot stand, and he condones it, is gossip. You know, George With doesn't mind, obviously, discussing matters with people. But if there's one thing he would not stand to tolerate is people stabbing each other in the back, people sticking their noses where it doesn't belong. After all, if one engages in gossip then how can that person be considered a trustworthy individual? There is a saying out there. I remember uh, some years back at my work, um, I went to get my lunch and I saw uh, the quote of the week, it must have been. And it had to do with gossip. And it's a very powerful um, quote. I think it's something we should all remember. Gossip is like a nasty virus. The only way to contain it is to keep your mouth closed. Well, I think that would apply very well in today's, in the world we live in today, because sadly we do live in a tell-all society. You know, there was a time when I think many people had more smarts to know what was appropriate and not appropriate to share out in the open. Um, you know, it's one thing to share something that could be personal, but you better make sure you're sharing it with the right person, because uh, if not, you never know what the other person's capable of doing. So, the bottom line is, is that, uh, yes, if you know something about something that's sensitive and you know it's not worth sharing, don't do it. This way, by not doing it, you've kept your mouth closed and you've prevented um, the further spread of something that does not need to spread like fireflies.
So um, now uh, we're going to get into some um, some good stuff. Not that we haven't gotten into any good stuff already, but how about some um, more um, fun information to learn? Where did George Wythe's journey for independence from England begin? It was in opposition to the Stamp Act in 1765. Now, I mentioned that earlier when uh, Jefferson listened to Patrick Henry rail against the Stamp Act. But, but as for George Wythe, that was the uh, beginning for, for severing um, ties with England. So I'm sure most of you who probably don't know much about the Stamp Act, and if you don't know much, that's fine. I'm here to uh, provide you with uh, vital information. The Stamp Act was passed, obviously, in 1765. It was a law where Parliament placed taxes on newspapers, as well as tea, glass, paint, lead, paper. And this was a tax as a means to um, get money from the colonists for payments from the French and Indian War. There is a problem, though. All the colonists, not just in Virginia, but throughout all 13 colonies as a whole, didn't have any say or authority as to what was fair and unfair from Parliament. So, in other words, Parliament decides to pass this legislation, but doing so without the consent of the people in colonial America. They just thought, okay, um, they know that they are subjects to the crown. They'll go along with this like they've done before. No, uh, times are different now. And in the 1760s, especially after the French and Indian War comes to an end, the relations between England and the 13 colonies become very bitter, especially in Boston. Boston um, is truly, Boston, Massachusetts is truly the uh, cradle for um, American independence at this point. Virginia, we're not there just yet. We're starting to but we are not ready to gradu we're not ready to adamantly break away like Boston is. Now, the Stamp Act would be the first of many uh, pieces of legislation that Parliament would pass that would be considered um, what do you call it, not just unfair, but um, a violation of um, proper consent. But let alone the Stamp Act often gets referred to as taxation without representation. In other words, Parliament uh, imposed taxes on us, but they did so against our own will, where we did not have a voice prior to the passage of the law to say, hey, we are against this. You need to talk to us. You need to hear our input, because we are people after all. We might be subjects, but we are still entitled to have our say. I should also point out that um, King George III, over the time, would refer to the 13 colonies as ungrateful subjects. Now, the Stamp Act, there is good news to report about the Stamp Act in that um, it didn't last very long. As a matter of fact, the Act itself would be repealed shortly um, during the... Um, first three months of 1766 it would be repealed, but the bad news is that Parliament would find another way to make the colonists' lives miserable, and that was um, implementing a law the, year, the following year in 1767 known as the Townshend Duties, which basically uh, placed duties on uh, lead, paint, uh, paper, glass, the same, basically the same thing, but just another, um, another name another way to make uh, the colonists' lives a little bit more miserable in terms of um, passing legislation without our consent. Now, in the spring of 1775, Virginia sends Mr. Wythe to Philadelphia as a representative, or I should say delegate, to the Second Continental uh, Congress. He served on committees which oversaw construction of the first U.S. Navy to settling land disputes between the colonies to producing published journals on Congress's work. Wythe was well-liked by everyone, most notably John Adams, whom I mentioned from a previous podcast, who wasn't usually fond of Southerners, but when he met Mr. Wythe, as well as Thomas Jefferson, it's fair to say that he had made some, he was able to make some exceptions. 
It's good not to burn bridges, even if you may not be fond of a certain group of people. Now, it was with in Philadelphia when, when independence got approved and the Declaration itself, or the Declaration of Independence document signed. No, he was not there. He was called back to Virginia in assisting the uh, colony's uh, constitutional convention, but he would return to Philadelphia in the fall of 1776, where he signed his name to the landmark document. Now, Wythe's return to Philadelphia in the fall of 1776 and onward saw him work on committees with men like John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, to George Washington. But one of the key committees that he served on was, I mean, all the committees he served on were very important ones, but the, but I would have to say the most important committee he was a part of was overseeing the work of diplomats sent to France to help persuade the French to join the Americans in the Revolutionary War against England. Benjamin Franklin was one of those diplomats. Remember, folks, you know, we don't have telephones back then, so we can't call up a, a foreign nation and say, hey, would you all be, you know, so-and-so country, are you willing to join us in the war against England? No, um, the, the Americans knew that the French wanted to, that the French would have been a great ally, in large part because they had been defeated by the British in the French and Indian War. And of course, in the aftermath of that defeat, what happens? The British take over all the territory that had once belonged to the French. So, uh, how many people lived in Williamsburg year-round? I'll give you a number. It's between uh, 1,000 and 2,000. I know that seems like a small number, but the reality is it wasn't a very high population. The answer is 1,500. However, the population tripled when the legislature, the House of Burgesses, was in session during October and April. So, if it tripled, it would have been about 4,500 or more. Okay, um, as for um, educational studies at William & Mary, I had told you all a short while ago that we would talk more about the uh, curriculum, and especially knowing that Thomas Jefferson studied about 8 to 10 hours a day. So I'm sure many of you, many of you all are wondering, how much um, academical studies or uh, topics would uh, students in this day and time have um, learned about? Okay. So, yes, William & Mary did have a tough curriculum. It probably still does today, given that it is a, still a very prestigious school. But uh, in Thomas Jefferson's time, to earn a bachelor's degree, some of the requirements ranged from reading eight books of Euclid, who, would, who was a famous uh, Greek um, uh, figure of his time, to surveying algebra, basic trigonometry, to mastering the first principles of astronomy, Thomas Jefferson would have benefited uh, from that one because one of the three people he admired most, um, the first two were um, John Locke, who was a huge um, uh, leader behind life, liberty, and um, not just pursuit of happiness, but for uh, private property. Um, Edmund uh, Bacon, or uh, Francis Bacon, rather, and a fellow named uh, Sir Isaac Newton, who... Um, was a um, astronomer as well, but more so a physicist. Students were also required to take classes in logic, natural law, civil history, law enforcement, to general principles of politics. Now, of course, law enforcement, that probably did not mean learning how to become a police officer. It was more about being, say, like a, you know, law enforcement in terms of um, around the uh, study of law itself to the general principles of politics. Students were also required to have fundamental knowledges in geography as well as ancient and modern languages. So let me tell you this, folks. Students in Jefferson's time, including himself, are getting the full nine yards of education. They don't have time to sit around and wait two years before they decide they want to declare a major. You're going to college for a reason. You better know right away what you want to study. You. You don't, they don't have time for students to sit around and just squander the day away. What do you think, uh, to sum up this uh, session or episode, what do you think Wythe's mission was all about? To educate people. To educate people 
to where boundaries didn't exist. In other words, George Wythe wanted people to constantly expand their minds. He knew that education was key, was the key to a person's uh, success in life, but he also knew that anyone, regardless of race or status in society, deserved to, um, to improve upon their current state. This um, ideology behind education included him teaching slaves how to read and write. And in some colonies, I will have to admit this, in some colonies that was against the law to do that. But George Wythe took it upon himself to give slaves, or I should say African Americans, an opportunity to better themselves. As a matter of fact, he even taught white men, white and black men, at the same on the same levels. And in one one instance, he was mentoring a a young white man as well as a young black man in the field of law, and both men turned out just great. So the bottom line is, he was teaching white and black men on the same levels where both races achieved equal results. In the eyes of Mr. Wythe, inferiority was not to be tolerated. After all, George Wythe does have his mother to thank for this. She was the, she's the one that has advocated that he um, fight for those who are less fortunate, those who have not, never really been able to have a say in their government, those who have been kept at one particular status, and But as for with, he wants people from all walks of life to have opportunities. Well, when I'm back on the air again with you all next, we're going to talk about how Jefferson and how, about how Thomas Jefferson and George Wythe go about remaking Virginia. And this will be from the time after 1775, but we're still in Williamsburg, but I should also point out that this is the, when I'm on the air again next that we're going to be talking about um, about how Virginia evolves from having from no longer having a royal governor to an actual governor that has no ties to the crown. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. Take care and stay safe.